0: On today's show, my weekly examination of the minuscule differences between wins and losses, good bets and bad bets, and public opinion surrounding good players and bad players. Before we get there, I want to give you one reason why gambling should be legal everywhere. Not to toot my own horn, I was 3-0 on my football picks last week on this show. Today, we start in the exact same place, because Monday is the day we get ready for Saturday. College football is going to be Phenomenal. In this upcoming week, there's one game that I would like to concentrate on today. The Ole Miss running Rebels at the Alabama Crimson Tide. Ole Miss is plus 14. That is who we are rolling with. Because there's only one person that I will continually back as they play Nick Saban against the spread. It is Lane Kiffin. He is very weird. He's online way too much. I don't know how he finds so much time to tweet. However, he's the only person on planet Earth that is not afraid to play a football game against Nick Saban, and he seems to take a little delight in tweaking him, which never hurts. Even better, this year, his quarterback is Matt Corral, who is not only a top NFL prospect, he is currently the early frontrunner for the Heisman Trophy. Good track record, unafraid of Saban, Ole Miss running Rebels, plus 14, and we have our reason why gambling should be legal everywhere, because the only person who trolls Nick Saban, Deserves our financial support. And now, sports with Chris Roll. Welcome to Monday on the Margins. Weekly examination of good losses, bad losses, good bets, bad bets, good players, bad players. And just the fact that all of these things are separated by literally nothing, a hair off of my chin currently. Uh, I'm convinced that 99% of life is random chance. The 1% that you can control, it's virtually nothing. What you controlled today was listening to the show. That's it. What I controlled was recording the show. That's also it. The rest of it, we just get blown around by the winds of chance and whatever happens, happens. Uh, With that in mind, it's fitting that we ended this weekend of football on Sunday night with uh, Packers Niners thrillers after that Packers Niners thriller. And after that game, Aaron Rodgers is interviewed by Michelle Tafoya and he's waxing philosophical because now he's in a hippie phase. And he says, how can you not be romantic about football? Which resonates with me because I like football. I like romance and I like the combination of those two things. And there's a lot of similarities between those two things. Uh, Just the randomized chance that exists in both of these worlds where football, romance, you know, it's going to take you through the ups and the downs with no apology. It's the roller coaster ride. When it's going good, you feel like there is literally nothing on earth that will ever be better. When it's bad, you're down on the floor, you're bloody and dying, and just there's nothing that's possibly worse. Uh, How can you not be romantic about football? I feel that very strongly on Saturday. With the Nebraska game that I will get into, I feel that very strongly on Sunday night. With that Packers Niners game that I will also get into. So the purpose of this show, as I explained last week, I think people fall in love with the idea that anything in life is just easy to discern and deduce and to pick apart and go, this is how it is, and and you know this football game, this is why this team won, and they're significantly better, and. My take is always, it's never as simple as it seems in any facet of life. Romance, football, gambling, it doesn't matter. There's so much nuance to all of this stuff that I really like to pick it apart because when I get to the core of it, I go, oh, this is just kind of random chance and we don't really control anything on planet Earth. So how's that for your existential thought of the day? Let's get into a lot of games and talk about a lot of these moments that separate good from bad in our minds. I want to start with Saturday morning, big noon kickoff, Fox game, Notre Dame at Wisconsin. I handed out Notre Dame plus six and a half on the show last week. Uh, The total of that game was 44 points. It was a grubby, grubby, grubby game. It was fit for Thursday night. I'll put it that way. It was not fit for Saturday. However, if you're going to put it on Saturday, you throw it right in that 10 a.m. slot when teams don't know how to move the ball four yards and it fit in well there. It's 3-3 in the first half. Neither offense can move the ball. Jack Cohn's just kind of doinking around. Grand Mertz, I don't know what happened to him, but he's somehow forgotten how to play football. Notre Dame has possession of the ball. There's less than five minutes to go in the first half. Jack Cohn throws it down the sideline to Kevin Austin, one of their better receivers who makes what does not look like a catch at any point. It's ruled a touchdown on the field. Showing it on replay, Kevin Austin, he catches it for about one millisecond, and then it's ripped out, and it's bumbling around, and I'm watching it. And I have Notre Dame, and so I'm going, ah, that's coming back. No, no, this is all right. It's all right. You know, I have six and a half points. This game is presumably going to end five to three. It's on a game-winning safety. We're fine. Just don't turn the ball over. It goes to replay where it is confirmed as a touchdown catch. And me, a uh, Notre Dame backer, am <laughs> watching this going, what are we doing here? What, what, what is the purpose of replay? I know this is a soapbox that people hate when I get on, but replay should not exist in sports for two reasons. One, it takes eight years to discern anything. And two, what is discerned is not rooted in reality. It's a 500-year-old man with spectacles on that are thicker than my entire body, looking at a screen that's two inches big and then determining uh, what was the call in the field? Yeah, just let's confirm that. Because he can't, he doesn't know, he can't see. He doesn't know what's going on. This is the replay system that's currently in place. This is what what determines football games. This is what determined a first half money line bet. If you took Notre Dame because they score the touchdown, they go into the half up 10-3. Notre Dame money line, first half cashes, and you're feeling good about life. This is right after Wisconsin picks off Jack Cohn at midfield, literally right after, and it's overturned due to a pass interference call that no one really knows where it was or what happened. They're showing it on replay and I'm going, well, looks like we got away with that one. Then two plays later, well, looks like we got away with that one. Again, there are so many things that go into a football game that it is astounding that we act like any of this is is real. <laughs> and any of this is a good bet or a bad bet or all this kind of stuff. Um, going into halftime, I see this tweet from Matt Fortuna talking about this game and just this idea that like, oh yeah, sometimes you can just play a football game and the score that ends up representing the game in no way tells the story of what happened. For the first half, the Irish go in up 10-3 And this comes from Matt. Wisconsin has four sacks, seven tackles for loss, has held Notre Dame to minus two rushing yards, saw the Irish miss a chip shot field goal, and is still losing 10 to three at halftime. Uh, This somehow gets even worse when you talk about anybody who bet on the total. As I mentioned, the total was 44 points. At no point did I feel like that was in doubt as a hard, hard under. Again, your 10 a.m. grubby, grubby, grubby game. Graham Mertz is throwing a pick every other pass. Notre Dame is struggling to move the ball further than 12 yards. It's 10-10 going into the fourth quarter. Okay. <laughs> and and I I laugh out of sadness, not out of happiness, because if you had the under in this game and you ended up being on the wrong side of the total, and what would uh, people would look at and say, oh. You made a bad bet. You lost your bet. I feel greatly for that position because the game ends 41-13. Total goes over by 10 points. You know, it's 20 points going in that quarter. You have 24 points to work with in one quarter. And Notre Dame themselves scores 31 points in the fourth quarter on 63 total yards of offense. 31 points on 63 total yards. They have a kick return for a touchdown. They have an interception return for a touchdown. Oh, here's another interception return for good measure. Three touchdowns on non-offensive plays. This is the kind of stuff that can decide a good bet or a bad bet. At the same time that this game is going on, Boise State is playing at Utah State in my neck of the woods. Logan, Utah. I went there for a year. You know, I'm a proud one-quarter alum, if that makes sense. Utah State is plus nine and a half. And if you have them in the first half, I'm watching this game because it's 10 a.m. And there's just a lot of weird games going on. And I can't fully determine which game I should keep on each of the four screens. And so I settle on Boise State, Utah State, because I have a bet on Utah State. I have a bet on the under. And I'm going, yeah, we'll see what's happening in here. We get to the end of the first half. And again, much in the same way that I feel for all of these Notre Dame, Wisconsin underbetters, I feel greatly for any Utah State better in the first half because Utah State has 317 yards of offense in the first half alone. 317 yards. By the standards set by Notre Dame in that fourth quarter when they have 31 points on 63 yards, I can't do the math right now, but it's probably 160 some odd points that Utah State should have had in the first half. Instead, what did they end with? Zero. Because the scorer never fully tells the story of what happens in a game. They have 317 yards of offense in the first half, and they, ha- they score zero points. They throw two picks on Boise's side of the field. They miss two chip shot field goals. They're just moving the ball at will until it comes time to score, and then they're acting like they've never seen a football before in their lives. There's a play in the first half with about four minutes to go. They're down 10. Again, that's what it ends up being 10-0 at the half. Their punt returner fields it at the half yard line, which is one of those moments that I always think about special teams blunders. I will get into that greatly later on, but there are always special teams plays in the NFL game and especially the collegiate game where I just don't understand how they continually happen over and over. Because my understanding of the situation is always you're anchored at a certain point as a punt returner and you can't extend back beyond that point because you don't want to field the ball at the half yard line. So when you're at the 10-yard line, you go, oh, well, the ball's going over my head. It goes into the end zone, great for us. If not, so be it. But the thing that I'm not going to do is field the ball at my half-yard line and get tackled, thus pinning my offense and having to force them to drive 99.5 yards to try and get points, which they end up driving down there. and, And what happens? Their kicker, another special teams blunder, misses a chip shot field goal. This is the kind of stuff that decides bets. This is the kind of stuff that decides games. Nothing Nothing is controllable. Your offense can move the ball for 317 yards and you can score zero points or your offense can move the ball for 63 yards in a quarter and score 31. It's just who knows what you're going to get. It's a grab bag. Speaking of kickers, there's always an incredible amount of games, again, collegiately and professionally, as I will get into, that are simply just decided by kickers, which is weird because No one really ever thinks of kickers. They kick into a net on the side of the field for the vast majority of the game. They don't even practice with the team. They just kick on their own. They're like not really football players by most discernible measures. And yet what decides outright wins and losses a lot of the time, what decides point spreads, totals, what decides players' legacies is whether or not a kicker comes in and kicks the ball through the uprights or not. That's the difference between a clutch drive and a non-clutch drive. And, and at first, I'm thinking about this in the Clemson-NC State game. It's probably the biggest upset of the weekend. Clemson goes in as 10-point favorites to NC State, and they lose in double overtime. Total of that game's 48 points. Important to note. Uh, NC State's kicker does not have himself a fine game. He misses two field goals during the course of the game. NC State drives at the end of the regulation. It's 14-14. If you have bet the under in this game, much like Notre Dame, Wisconsin, you're feeling very good about life because nobody can move the ball. Clemson's offense is the most anemic thing that I've ever seen. Their defense is actually good, so they're containing NC State. That's why it's 14-14 through 59 minutes and 58 seconds or whatever it was. And NC State sends out their kicker to win the game 39 yards away. I always have a metric. It's not a metric. It's a a philosophy. When it shows a close-up of a kicker, As they're getting ready for these things and it just shows their face and they've already missed field goals in the game, I can immediately know if they're going to miss or not. It's not 100% proven fact, but it's like this spiritual connection where I see him and I go, oh no, this just isn't going to go well. And it shows this guy and he's lining up for a 39 yard field goal. And I go, this just, it's not going to go well. There's just no way. And so he biffs it and it feels like the tides have turned and Lady Luck is shining down on Clemson and they're somehow going to eke out this win and instead it goes into overtime, they exchange touchdowns, and then NC State scores to win the game. 27-21, remember that total? 48 points. Now it ends on the push number. Just another grotesque moment for anybody who bet an under in a game that at no point seemed in doubt, and then in the blink of an eye, kicks were missed, and it meant more, more points were scored in overtime. This is This is the margins. This is where every gambler lives. This is where every fan of football lives. This is where I wish people who talked about players' legacies lived because all these little tiny things reflect upon our perceptions of a player. And I always find this to be very strange. For me, the legacy is always just, did I think that person was good or bad at football? And here are all the things that I can say to support that. It's never really going to be, You remember this clutch game that happened here? Because I understand in any individual game, moments like this pile up over and over and over and over and over over, to the point where trying to unravel the threads of any individual game, it's just insanity. You get to the end and, and you do what I did at the start of this. You have an existential moment and you go, none of this matters. None of this is controllable. Just go about your lives and control the 1%. Just listen to the show, record the show. That's it. Uh, I always have people ask me when it comes to the sport of college football. They're like, eh, there's too many blowouts and stuff. And I go, yeah, there, there are. However, this is a great selling point for gambling. That's what I always will tell people. You can have a game like Akron, Ohio State, which we know is going to be a sacrifice. Akron's going to get put on the altar and cut in half and we're going to pull out their entrails and, and you know hang them onto a tree and do who knows what with them. I don't know what people do with sacrifices. The main point is, we know this going in. So if you want to have an interest in the game beyond watching entrails be spread across a tree, you bet. So I take Ohio State minus 48 points. Knowing going in, it's going to be so stupid in a way that I can't fully comprehend because games like this are always so stupid. The total of this game is 67 total points which sets up a pretty great gambling moment at the end of the game, which is so stupid. Again, (laughs) I can't stress how stupid all of this is. You do it because you can't control anything, and so you give yourself up to it. Ohio State's up 59-7. to Important to note, that's 52-point margin, so they are covering the spread. That is 66 total points, so the under is there by one point. Any points scored for Akron, that's going to swing the line and the total. And indeed, they're driving there right at the very end of the game. It's a 59-7 game. I'm glued to the screen. You know, the end are spread out. The heart's still beating there on the ground. I'm going, why did I bet on... This is stupid. This is actually stupid. I truly had a moment, a, a moment of awakening. And Akron has, with nine seconds to go, Ohio State kind of blows a the coverage. as a wide open touchdown pass. Akron's quarterback throws it to a guy. It's Ohio State's 12th string. You know, they're pulling people out of the stands to play defense at this point. So it doesn't matter. They just don't want any injuries. And Akron has a wide open touchdown with nine seconds left to hit the over and to cash. Akron plus 48. And he just drops it. <laughs> and even as I'm winning the bet and I'm gleefully doing a little dance, I'm like, this is just dumb. This is just is dumb. That was a good bet by, by the actual way that bets are measured, which is did I cash or did I not? By that metric, it was a good bet. If you follow the stuff and the more you gamble, you just understand holy cow, how is every one of these games a coin flip and just decided by the most random stuff? Wide open receiver can't catch a touchdown and the under and Ohio State. That's a good bet. This stuff's crazy. I mean, this show could be eight hours long. I could just start recording it Monday morning and not stop until we get to grubby Thursday night football. And then we start again on Monday. And then I record that entire duration. That's how many of these games are decided by weird stuff. That's how many of these games live in the margins. At the same time this is going on, I have Buffalo minus 13 against Old Dominion. Buffalo roars out to a 35-7 lead. I go, that's cash. I don't even have to worry about it. Next thing I know, I see it on the bottom line. Old Dominion storming back. Then they're storming back even more. Now I'm losing my bet. That's already out the window. The outright winner loss is in doubt because Old Dominion scored. It's 35-34. It's the very end of the game. What's going to happen? How does this stuff get decided? By Old Dominion getting too excited about scoring this final touchdown, taking an unsportsmanlike celebration penalty, and then sending out their kicker to kick the game-tying extra point at the very end of the game who proceeds to miss because of the 15-yard penalty. And they lose outright despite cashing the plus 13. This is, this, this is how all this stuff is decided. How can you not be romantic about football? I'm coming back to this point because I felt this deeply on both ends of the spectrum. Saturday night, it's the lows of lows. I was the sacrificial victim. My entrails were spread out. My kidney was plucked out and put in a jar, you know? <laughs> I don't know why I keep going back to this stuff, this sacrifice stuff, but now it's too late to stop. Nebraska plays at Michigan State. Those of you who listen consistently know that I am a Nebraska football fan, much to my own chagrin, because the Cornhuskers are a never-ending tragedy. People feel bad when I tell them that I'm a Nebraska fan. That's not an exaggeration. I've never had this happen in my entire life in any sport. Talk with some stranger, oh, you like NHL? Well, who are your fan of? I go, Colorado Avalanche. They go, oh, I love Colorado. They go, oh, no, I'm a Detroit Red Wings fan. I dislike Colorado. Just the normal sports stuff. And now within the last few years, when I come across people who are college football fans, and they go, oh, well, who do you follow? You know, I love the sport. I go, I'm a Nebraska fan. And they go, oh, it's like this sad, like you would treat a wounded animal, you know, that you need to put down when you come across him on a trail and you go, oh, this deer has a broken leg. It's not going to make it out in the wild. You know, I feel bad for this. That's how people treat me in present day. And it makes sense if you ever watch a Nebraska football game. Because I can't comprehend how any of this happens anymore. I really can't. It's lost on me. My ability to comprehend the way that Nebraska's games are decided, it is beyond my own comprehension. Nebraska's plus five at Michigan State. I want Nebraska to win outright. I take Nebraska plus five because I believe there's value in that number. But I know that it's just setting up some sort of tragic ending in some way. I know that it's coming. I give myself a pep talk. Every single Nebraska game that means something against a normal or a good team. Michigan State's a ranked team coming in. A lot of people think they're reasonable and good. And I go, Chris, prepare yourself. Because Nebraska will find a way to do things. Not <laughs> Nebraska will find a way to do things. Not to do a thing. To do things that will defy your comprehension that you've never seen That will tie into the narrative that always exists that this team cannot stay out of its own way. But they'll do it in a way that you just, you don't know until you see it. So just prepare yourself. This is a team that after Saturday is 5-15 and in one possession games under Scott Frost. 5-15. and This is a team that in their last six overtime games has not scored a single point. Overtime in college, you are given the ball. Your offense always gets a chance. You're given the ball at the 25-yard line of the opposition. You are already there. If you don't do anything, you have a 42-yard field goal. That's the baseline, okay? In the last six... I'll read that stat again because I know you all, you all think that I misspoke. In their last six overtime games, Nebraska has not scored a point. This Michigan State game... It checks the traditional boxes. There's a million fault starts. I don't know what's going on there. Nebraska has a seven-yard punt. That's Nebraska bingo. That's the middle square. That's the free square. You'll see one of those every game. A punt that anybody, I could find my five-year-old nephew and he kicks it 10 yards. And somehow continually, Nebraska's special times are just, they defy comprehension. That's the only way that I can really put it. It rears its head even worse with four minutes to go. Nebraska's up by seven. They've completely controlled the second half, despite special teams blunders after special teams blunders, seven-yard punts, giving up big kick returns. Oh, they run a rugby-style punt to the right-hand side, and their punter kicks it directly left. So the coverage unit is all flowing right, as they should be, and Michigan State, one of their return men is just standing there and catches it, and there's nobody there, and he runs a punt back to tie the game with four minutes to go. That's not something I've seen, so that, that fulfills that part of Nebraska football game. And, and now the outright winner loss—that's in doubt because it's a tie game. And this Nebraska plus five I'm sitting on—I'm getting very queasy feeling in my stomach because I'm going. I didn't think I was going to lose this at any point, but oh boy, what's what's Nebraska going to do now? How how does this stuff? How is this stuff going to end? It's a never-ending tragedy. I know it's going to end in tragedy, but just how tragic will this particular game be? Scott Frost, a man who I think a lot of people think he's all about aggressiveness and offense and go for it and all this kind of stuff. He, with 35 seconds to go and possession of the ball and two timeouts in his back pocket and the ball at the 38-yard line of Nebraska, he decides, let's just take this into overtime. I can't explain anything that's going on in this game. I've never seen anything like it. I could do this segment every single Monday, and I probably will because it's cathartic for me and I don't go to therapy. I've never seen anything like Nebraska football in the way that they take a win and turn it into a loss in the way that they turn these gambling lines into a roller coaster ride that you, you just can't really get anywhere else. Michigan State, in the second half of this game, a game that ends with a Nebraska overtime loss. Michigan State does not get a first down in the second half. Zero first downs. They don't get to 10 yards of offense in the second half. This is obviously not including overtime. Zero first downs in the second half. Nebraska outgains Michigan State 440 to 254, nearly a 200-yard edge for the Nebraska Cornhuskers. It would be nearly impossible For any team to lose this game, but not for Nebraska. The never-ending tragedy. The team that just, they can find a way to pull defeat out of the jaws of victory in a way that defies comprehension and extends for decades. So there's an incredible sequence of events for this particular gambling line. That if you were a part of it, you know... How, you know, the the truth to the Aaron Rodgers uh, quote from Sunday night about football as romance and how thrilling of a ride in ways that are both good and bad any particular game can be. And you have to accept that both of them are going to happen. And they go to overtime. It's tied at 20s. Again, Nebraska's plus five. Nebraska gets the ball first, and Adrian Martinez on third down throws an interception that now the defensive back is returning, and he's the only one that can possibly stop it, and not only am I seeing this game unfold into a Nebraska loss, I'm also seeing this Nebraska plus five ticket dissolve into nothingness, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness gracious, Nebraska is going to not only lose, but lose as plus five underdogs against the spread on a walk-off interception return in overtime, something I've literally never seen. And instead, Adrian Martinez makes a great play that doesn't end up affecting who wins and who loses the game, but ends up drastically affecting the spread because he tears through about eight people and takes a penalty, blasting out their legs, and somehow hits into their guy who's returning it with 40 yards left. And he falls down. They call a penalty on Martinez on sportsmanlike. You can't do that. However, it's just Michigan State ball, so who cares? You prevented the touchdown. The first offensive play for Michigan State. Another part of the thrill ride, the gambling thrill ride. Just everybody climb aboard. Kenneth Walker gets a carry and starts running. Oh no, it's going to be a touchdown. He's tackled at the one yard line. Everybody who has a Nebraska plus five ticket is tearing their hair out at this point. I can assure you of this. Michigan State runs and tries to score. To Nebraska's defense credit, who played just a phenomenal football game. They held them to 254 yards of offense. They deserve the victory in a way that I truly do feel bad for that entire unit. They've played great football games this year and they continually lose because they're saddled with special teams and coaching and an offense that doesn't know up from down. They storm in, they make a stop. Michigan State, they try to score another touchdown on second down, run it right up the middle. Nebraska holds. I'm going, just for the love of anything that's holy, just hold on this third down and let them kick the field goal. And at least, the very least, there's a small portion of me who will feel some sort of satisfaction from this ticket cashing. Michigan State does one better. They say, we're not going to take any chances. Send in the field goal unit on third down. They kick it. Nebraska loses. I can't fully piece together how it still happened, despite the fact that I just told a 20-minute story about it. Nebraska, the game closed at plus three and a half. I have them at plus five. You get them anywhere in that area. You have a good bet That is supported by what was in the box score, if which was supported by the balance that now is going into your gambling account. But if you watched it, you had to grind it out in a way that just, I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemy. This is life in the margins, ladies and gentlemen. And it doesn't get any stranger when you extend to the NFL. At times, it almost gets more bizarre when it comes to the gambling side of it, because... The lines in the NFL are so sharp on the spread and the total. And the stuff that decides this stuff, it's just insanity. It makes it so strange that we'll pull out these legacy moments and say, oh, this player's great. Look at what happened on Sunday. And I go, well, yeah, they are. maybe they are great. But I think what we're using to support this, it's not that. It's just let's maybe examine how they played as an individual. How can you not be romantic about football? I'll go back to that. Because it is a great line for how I like to watch football, how I consume it. Sunday, how about having a Jaguars first half money line bet? It's a tie game against the Cardinals. Cliff Kingsbury, who is not a good coach. I don't know what he's ever doing, really, in general. I don't know how he even got the job to coach the Arizona Cardinals. One play left in the first half. Tie game. He sends out Matt Prater, who has a leg, to kick a 68-yard field goal. 68 yards. This is in Jacksonville. It's outdoors. Uh, It's at sea level. I I don't really know if he possesses the capacity to kick that. It's not a dome. It's not high altitude. So they're lining up for it, and I'm just going, this is kind of weird. But I don't think that the worst-case scenario will happen because... That's just, who would ever think that? Prater boots it. The Jaguars have Jamal Agnew, one of the better return men in the game, actually. He's back there just sitting in his end zone in case Matt Prater doesn't have enough leg to kick a 60-yard field goal. And indeed, he boots it up there and he doesn't. So now Jamal Agnew is fielding a field goal that if you think about a field goal unit, it's comprised of a bunch of people who are solely there to block, to prevent the defense from trying to block this field goal bigger people who are not really maybe equipped to tackle an open field. Ask Nick Saban in Alabama about that. Most famous play in modern college football history. Kick six against Auburn. They kick it. Jamal Agnew is now returning. Again, one of the better return men against a unit that doesn't really possess the capabilities of trying to stop a really good return man. So now a bunch of linemen are scrambling around trying to tackle him. He's weaving around. Now he's going down the sideline. He's running a 108-yard missed field goal return all the way back for a touchdown with no time on the clock. If you had a Jaguars money line ticket, you cashed. If you had Jaguars first half money line ticket, you cashed. If you had a Cardinals first half money line ticket, instead of getting a push, you now have a loss. This is the kind of stuff that decides gambling moments. College, NFL, it doesn't matter. It's just insanity. I talked about kickers earlier and I want to go back to this point because it ties into... The two most entertain Well, it ties into the most entertaining moment of Sunday and the most entertaining game of Sunday. Justin Tucker and the Baltimore Ravens and that Sunday night game, Packers-Niners. It is always crazy to truly think about the effect kickers have on this stuff. But more importantly, the way that we talk about quarterbacks in the NFL... This is always the legacy part. And this is always one of the things that drives me insane. Is when we throw around stats like, well, this quarterback isn't clutch because look at their record in one possession games. Or look at their rate of success in drives with two minutes to go when they're trailing by seven or less points. Look at how little their team scored. Look at that, Look at their win loss record. They, they must not be clutch. And I and I always push back and say, OK. That's a true number if you take it at face value. That is literally their win-loss record. However, I would really like to talk about each of these individual games. This is the thing that I always want to discuss with people. It's never as simple as this person isn't clutch because they're 2-7 and in in one possession games and they haven't really had a lot of success in these two-minute drives at the end of a game when they're tied or trailing. I go, well, let's talk about those drives. Let's see what happened within them. And there's always moments like what occurs on Sunday, the Ravens and the Lions. Lamar Jackson, fantastic quarterback. I recorded a show about him on Thursday, Uh, truly one of the stars of the NFL, even if he's not fully given his due by a lot of people because he plays quarterback in a way that is different from other quarterbacks. He plays a great game. Hollywood Brown can't catch the ball. Ravens are trailing by one. Every person on planet Earth has the Ravens in two team teasers at minus one and a half. It looks like they're going down. They're backed up. It's fourth and 14. There's no time on the clock. Lamar throws a great pass to give them life. Now they get in position with one play left. They're 66 yards away. Justin Tucker is the best kicker in the history of the NFL. He's inside of the dome. If anybody can do it, he can do it. You know, this is a different situation from Matt Prater out in Jacksonville. So they send Tucker in, but it's 66 yards. If he makes it, it's a new NFL record. Even for the best kicker in NFL history who's got an incredible leg, this is asking a lot. And he kicks it, and it's straight. So now we're all hanging in suspense. It's a great, great, great moment of theater. But it's also interesting to hit pause while the ball's in the air and it's straight and realize if. Justin Tucker has this incredible otherworldly kick that would set an NFL record. If it goes in, this is a win for Lamar. It's a clutch drive that he pieced together, that he made an incredible throw on fourth and 14 with no timeouts, all that kind of stuff. And if the kick misses, it's a loss in the loss column for Lamar in these close games. And, and oh, now we can laugh at him and he's not clutch. He just can't throw the ball downfield. That's why the Ravens couldn't win. These are the narratives that arise based solely upon this individual moment. I really want people to comprehend this in their brains. I think it's important to identify as we talk about narratives on other shows throughout the week or or just with fans in general. That's what's riding upon the outcome of this kick. It's another piece in the puzzle of one of these two narratives. The ball, now we unpause, it's coming. Oh my goodness gracious, it hits the crossbar. He has... Enough leg to kick it exactly 66 yards, and it bounces, and we can't really tell if it's in or out. It's hearkening back to the famous double doink against the, uh, the Bears against the Eagles in the playoffs, and you can't tell if it's in or out. So it bounces straight up, and it, you don't know if it's forward or backwards, and the refs run out, and it's in. The Ravens are celebrating an incredible, truly an incredible moment. And also, Lamar's going to get his due, and rightfully so. But let's just remember, if that kick doesn't go in, then that's another bit of information to say, Lamar had the exact same performance regardless of whether or not this kick went in. If you think that performance was good, then you think Lamar is good. You think he can perform under stress, under pressure. You think he can make a nice throw on fourth and 14 when the game is on the line. That exists regardless of whether or not this kick go in. That's what I want to stress. It's the same thing that I want to stress about the Sunday night game where I will end this show on. Packers and Niners, great game. Packers race out to a 17-0 lead. Niners come storming back. Aaron Rodgers, obviously my favorite player of all time. He's making plays. He's 260 yards, 22 for 33, two touchdowns, no picks. He's zipping it around the yard, doing all your Rodgers stuff. There's all sorts of crazy stuff going on down the stretch. Refs are making calls that I can't understand, like always. Uh, Niners are marching down the field, scoring a touchdown to go up. With 37 seconds to go on the clock. No timeouts for Green Bay. And I have my head in my hands going, oh, how is Green Bay gonna lose this game? I feel like they've controlled. Rogers gets the ball back. Again, thirty-seven seconds, no timeouts. Field goal wins. First play is just it's one of those throws <laughs> that you just say, that's just Aaron Rodgers. He's one of very few people in the history of the NFL that makes throws like this with regularity. Devontae Adams down on an in-cut, 25 yards or so downfield. He's got coverage behind him over the top. He's got Fred Warner underneath him and Rodgers puts a ball that looks so simple and easily placed just over the fingers of Fred Warner, who's jumped up the best middle linebacker in football, a great coverage linebacker in his own right. It's just barely over his hands and Devontae Adams catches it. They run two more plays, the second of which is another hit to Devontae Adams to put them in field goal range, 51 yarder for Mason Crosby. And it sets up another one of these moments because people always talk about Aaron Rodgers and go, "Ha, ah, I mean, he's just not, maybe he's not as clutch as as Tom Brady or stuff like this. And I always go, well, I, I don't think that's true. I think Rodgers is the best quarterback I've ever watched. People disagree with me. That's fine. I think that he plays the position better than anybody I've ever watched play the position. That's my take. I'll go, "Well, what about his what about his record in one one lot, or one possession games?" I go, "Well, let's talk about those games." I'll go down right now. "Well, what about the stat that NBC shows as Rodgers is getting ready for this drive where it says I can't remember the time parameters, but I want to say less than 3 minutes to go with the Packers trailing by seven or less." Needing, you know, or maybe, no, trailing by three, I believe. Needing a field goal to tie, needing a touchdown to win. Rodgers, he's four for 11 on drives like this in his career. Small, super small sample size. You look at it and you say four for 11. Well, I don't know. I don't have anything to compare that to, but that doesn't seem good. And then there's a little yellow bar beneath that that says four of these drives ended in missed field goals. (laughs) So... You put that into a a larger context and you say, oh, well, eight out of 11 times in his career in this particular situation, Rodgers put his team in position to win or to extend the game. That seems like a really good ratio by any conceivable metric. But if we're judging it solely upon did your team actually win or lose or did your kicker actually make those kicks? Well, then it's four for eight that's pretty bad. So it sets up another one of these moments. Rodgers played a great game again, just a a normal Aaron Rodgers game. One of the best players that has existed. He plays that game. And Mason Crosby lines up to kick this field goal. And as it's hanging in the air, you push the pause button and you go, if he misses, this is another one of those moments that down the road We'll say, well, Rodgers just hasn't had a lot of success in, in these clutch scenarios. He's a bum. He's not as good as, as a Tom Brady or, or pick your quarterback of choice that you like to consider to be clutch. And if Crosby makes it, then, okay, well, we have another little bit of information there that we can, maybe if we're trying to build a case for Rodgers being clutch, you know, this, uh, if Crosby hits it, then then we have a little bit of information. You unpause, the kick goes through, Rodgers is freaking out on the sideline Great stuff. Uh, (laughs) And it's the perfect cap to a weekend. For me, uh, as I examine all of these margins and just what actually goes into a win or a loss, what actually goes into a good bet or a bad bet, let's keep that in in air quotes. And especially for this particular moment, uh, whether this game or whether the Ravens game with Lamar, just what we're actually talking about. What, what's public opinion when it, it comes time to determine what do we think of this player? What do we think of Lamar? What do we think of Rodgers? Do we think that they can survive under the stress of the two-minute drill? Do we think that you can win with them, at your quarterback, all this kind of stuff? That's Monday on the margins. That is the point of this entire show. And, and I'll wrap it all up with the words. Of Aaron Rodgers. How can you not be romantic about football? Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel at ceo.com.